0: Are some things that are in the scriptures that are hard to believe? Actually, it might be more accurate to say that nearly everything that's in the scriptures is hard to believe. Isn't that true? Apart from divine grace, can sinful man believe anything that's found in there? He can't and he won't. Our in unregenerate state, apart from a saving work of God and apart from His marvelous grace, everything we find in Scripture is absolutely unbelievable. The Gospel is the hardest thing in the world to believe. It's actually impossible to believe because man without grace cannot believe that, that God became man, born of a virgin and died on a cross and rose again to pay the sin penalty for all who would believe in Him for eternal life. That is an unbelievable proposition. And all of the miracles in scripture have served as a football field upon which they can, skeptics and agnostics and atheists and liberals and critics can take the miracles of the Bible and kick them about and toss them about and eventually toss them out entirely. And skeptics and liberals who have crept into the church and critics of the Bible are always quick to grab onto the miracles and then to say, well, this couldn't have happened. This is just a fabrication written by men who were unlearned and unscientific and really were explaining quite ordinary phenomena in extraordinary terms in an attempt to lend credibility to their God and to convince people that their God was true. And If you ever watch any sort of religious documentary on PBS, the A&E, History Channel, then you see that's exactly what they do. They take Christianity as just to them a toy to sort of scoff at and then to throw out with all of the other quote-unquote religious myths. And the Bible is filled with supernatural things. They are supernatural because anytime you have an infinite, eternal, almighty, powerful being who manifests himself any way within his created order, you're going to have supernatural, miraculous things occur. You have them in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament begins with a miracle. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is a miracle, is it not? That is a supernatural event. And after that, there is the worldwide flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the military victories of the nation of Israel, the fall of the wall of Jericho, the parting of the Red Sea, the miracles performed by Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, and some seen in the times of Isaiah and others. The Old Testament is filled with miracles. And then when God became flesh and stepped into human history, that was accompanied by all sorts of miracles, including a virgin birth. And then that individual who claimed to be God in human flesh, raised the dead and healed the sick, walked on water, multiplied bread and fish. In fact, do you realize that the entire Christian faith rests upon the validity of one miracle, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And if that is false, if that is not true, then all of Christianity crumbles. We are quite dependent for our faith and in our faith on the actual occurrence of miracles. Now, I would submit to you that if Genesis 1.1 is true... If in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if in the beginning He spoke and it was so, if He created all things out of nothing, just by the word of His mouth, if that is true, if Genesis 1-1 is true, then everything that follows Genesis 1-1 is not only possible, it's believable. Does that follow? If He can create water, He can walk on it. If He can create fish, He can multiply fish. If he can create a human body, then he can certainly heal it, if he wills, from any disease or ailment that he wants to. If he created life, he can give life to a dead individual at his, at his will, at his beck and call, the word of his mouth. If he created rods and serpents, then he can change one into the other and then back again. If he created the Red Sea and the wind, he can use the wind to part the Red Sea. If Genesis 1-1 is true, everything that follows it is not only possible, it's actually believable. Well, we come now to another passage of Scripture that that skeptics and critics have a field day with. It is the account of a resurrection. It is the account of a miracle in Acts chapter 20. And you'll need your Bibles open to Acts chapter 20. We're going to be looking at a few verses there. An actual eyewitness account of a miracle. The Apostle Paul raises somebody from the dead. Now this is not the first time that a resurrection has happened in the book of Acts. Do you remember that it happened one other time prior? Back in Acts chapter 9, it was Peter, not Paul. And Peter was in a city and there was a certain disciple there named Tabitha, whose name in the Greek was Dorcas, and she died and she was she was abundant in good deeds and kindness and she was a believer and everybody was mourning for her and Peter went in and raised her back to life. And everybody in the town heard about that, and a whole bunch of people believed as a result of that miracle. Here we have it happening again. This time it's not Peter. It's another apostle, the Apostle Paul. And by the way, there are only two counts of a resurrection in the book of Acts, one by Peter and one by Paul. That's not to suggest that it never happened apart from that, but it is to suggest once again, as we've seen over and over in the book of Acts, it was the apostles who did these things. That's what Luke continues to remind us. Signs and wonders were performed at the hands of the apostles. That's the general principle. So Acts chapter 20, let's read together verses 7 through 12. Verse 7 says, On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. Now I want you to keep in mind this is an eyewitness account. you see that from the word we? Dr. Luke is once again with Paul. He's traveling with Paul now on his way back to Jerusalem. So we're going to get an eyewitness account this morning of two things. First, a worship service. And then second, a miracle. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the window sill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a while longer until daybreak and then left. And they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. Now, do you know where these events occur? Troas. We learn that from verse 6. Look up at verse 6. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. You remember back in verse 4, Luke named those seven men. He says, those seven men went on ahead of them and waited for them at Troas... And then Luke and Paul and maybe some other people stayed in Philippi to celebrate the days of unleavened bread, verse 6 says, and then we came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. So Paul is staying with Luke and with these other seven men in the city of Troas for seven days, and he happens to be there over a Sunday morning, or over a Sunday, actually a whole Sunday. He happens to be with them for a Lord's Day celebration. And so Luke gives us an insight into what the early church was like because he describes for us eyewitness, first-hand account, a church service. Now listen, this is the earliest description of a Christian worship service that we have in writing. The earliest description of a Christian worship service that we have in writing. From 58 A.D. by Luke's pen, this is what Luke saw Now we have a lot of general statements about the church and what their priorities were and what they did. We knew that they were involved in preaching and teaching a lot. We see that in the book of Acts. We know that they gathered on the Lord's Day. We see that in the book of Acts. We know that their priorities were prayer and observance of the Lord's Supper and the uh, apostles' doctrine and generosity. But this is the first time that Luke actually describes to us what took place at a Christian worship service. And I want you to notice a few things just about the service in general, as you look at verse 7, notice the day on which they met. What day of the week was it? It was on the first day of the week. Today is the first day of the week. Saturday is the seventh day of the week. The early church in 58 A.D. in the city of Troas, under the oversight of the apostle, met on a Sunday. It was the first day of the week. Now that's instructive because there are Sabbatarians and Sabbath keepers, most notably Seventh-day Adventists, who teach the Christians, if you're going to be obedient to Scripture, you must keep the Sabbath. If you talk to a Seventh-day Adventist long, and I've, I have a bunch of them in my family, if you talk to a Seventh-day Adventist long, you'll hear them assert two things. First of all, they'll assert this. The early church never met on Sundays. They met on Saturdays for their worship service. It's the first thing that they assert. What does verse 7 of chapter 20 say? They met on what day? The first day of the week. Second, they will assert, the Sabbath wasn't changed until late in the second century. And that was after Constantine had sort of taken over the church and he changed the worship from Saturday to Sunday in order to honor the sun God. And so anybody who worships on the Sunday is thus guilty of honoring the sun God. Just like Constantine did. Well, that's just pure baloney. That's not what happened. What does chapter 20, verse 7 say? They met on what? The first day of the week. And who was there? The Apostle Paul. And if they should have been meeting on Saturday, then we would read, they met on the seventh day of the week, or they met on the Sabbath for their worship. And here under the oversight of an Apostle, the church meets on the first day of the week. Do you know why they met on the first day of the week? Because it was the first day of the week that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. And so the early church, from its earliest times, set that day apart, not as Sunday, not as even the first day, but as the Lord's Day. They came together on the Lord's Day. This was the day that they gave to the Lord. For gathering together as a church, for breaking bread, for fellowship, for teaching, for preaching, for ministry, this was the Lord's Day. And it was holy to them. And they met on the first day of the week, which was the Lord's Day. Nowhere in the New Testament are we ever commanded to keep the Sabbath. The Apostle Paul actually says that you shouldn't let your brother judge you, and you shouldn't judge your brother for what day of the week he determines to keep. You want to keep Wednesday? Keep Wednesday. Sunday is the Lord's Day. Historically, traditionally, the church has always on Sunday or the Lord's Day observed that day as unto the Lord and have gathered together. But if you observe Wednesday over Thursday or whatever day it is, Do not judge your brother in regards to the day that he determines to keep. That's Romans chapter 14. Paul mentions it in Colossians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul warned a lot of Gentiles in a lot of Gentile churches about a lot of sins, and he never once warned anybody about breaking the Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath was not given as a sign to the church, as a sign of the new covenant, The Sabbath was given to the nation of Israel as a sign of the Old Covenant. And even in the Old Testament, you see Gentile nations condemned for their lack of hospitality, for their immorality, for their rejection of the one true God, for their idolatry, for their perversions, for a host of things. But you never once see a Gentile nation ever condemned for not keeping the Sabbath. Not once. You know why? It wasn't for Gentiles. It was for the nation of Israel. And so the church met on the first day of the week. I want you to notice something else significant about this church service. Not only were they gathered together on the first day of the week, but Luke tells us why they gathered together. They were gathered together for the breaking of bread. The early church met and they would share a meal together somewhat like our potluck, but also incorporated into that would be the observance of the Lord's Supper. And they would break bread together and they would celebrate communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper together as an observance together and a reminder of what Christ had done and the fact that He was coming again. Third thing I want you to notice about the worship service in verse 7 is who it is that came together. They came together on the first day of the week to celebrate the Lord's Day. They came together for the purpose of breaking bread and celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Now, what does that tell you about who was gathered together in the church? They would have been what? Believers or unbelievers? Believers. It was believers who came to the church. My friends, after all, the church is the church, right? The church is where the church gathers You don't have unbelievers coming into the church. They didn't meet together for evangelism. They didn't advertise in the newspaper and say, hey, you come on in and we'll tell you all about what God is doing. When the church gathered together, it was the church. It was the ecclesia, the called out ones, the elect, the sheep, the believers. Call them what you want. It was those who had been regenerated and born again. They came together, not for the purpose of evangelizing unbelievers who were amongst them, but for the purpose of breaking bread together, fellowshipping together, being taught the Word of God, and then the church goes out to the mission field. We don't invite the world into the church to win them to Christ. We meet together as a church, get ourselves equipped and built up in the faith, then we go out and win the world to Christ. Modern day churches got it all backwards. They didn't meet for evangelism. They met for discipleship. They met for fellowship. They met for worship. And they met for teaching. And they came together for that purpose. It was the believers who came together. Now, does that mean that unbelievers will never walk into our church? Does that mean that unbelievers will never come in here or they're not welcome here? Not at all. What it does mean is that what we do here really is not geared toward unbelievers, and it shouldn't be. The church never has and never will be geared for the unbeliever. It's geared for the believer. Now, unbelievers may come in, goats may come into the flock of sheep, and some of them then may hear the word of God and see God amongst us and then become believers. Some goats may come in and not like what they see and leave. I shouldn't expect them to like what they see. Some goats may come in and stay a long while amongst us and never get saved and never leave and they just kind of hang on. That's fine. But we're not going to change anything just for them. They met on the first day of the week. They met for the purpose of breaking bread together, enjoying fellowship together. It was believers who met. And I want you to notice the fourth element of their worship service, verse 7. Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Paul began talking to them. There's teaching going on in the church. They had the Apostle Paul there, and the Apostle Paul placed a premium, a priority, upon the ministry of teaching and preaching the Word of God. So as they gathered together, it was on a Sunday, it was believers, they were gathered together for fellowship, and Paul begins to dialegomize the word that Luke uses. It's the word he uses to describe sort of a question and answer, a back and forth, a very conversational style of teaching. Much more like we what we have in Sunday school, as opposed to what we have here during a worship service. It was a very relaxed sort of conversational approach to teaching. Paul was talking with them and teaching with them the Word of God. And this went on late into the night. We even noticed that they stayed there until midnight. Why would they be staying there until midnight? By the way, this was an evening service, obviously. You know why they met in the evenings many times in the early church? There's a very practical reason why the church would meet Many times in the evenings on the Lord's Day, and that is because the church was largely composed of slaves and um, uh, servants in different church or different homes throughout the Roman Empire. Most of the believers were of the slave class. They were of the lower citizenship. There were a few believers like the Corneliuses who were high-ranking officials, but they were few and far between. Most of the believers were of the lower class, and they would gather together. Most of them were workers and servants, so they would work all day and spend all day working for their master. Then they would get off work, and in the evening they would meet together because that's when most people, what was the most convenient time for them to meet in their culture. So they did that on a Sunday evening service. You have to keep in mind, these people have worked all day, most of them. They spent all day working at their job, serving their masters. Now they have come together for an evening service. And it says the Apostle Paul spoke until midnight. And why would it have gone so long? Does that seem extraordinary to you? Almost unbelievable? Well, Paul's on his way. He's just passing through. How many more times do you think the believers in Troas are going to see the Apostle? Where's he headed after he goes leaves Troas? We know he's going to Jerusalem to deliver the offering. And then once he's in Jerusalem, Paul says, I'm going to see Rome. And he's only stopping in Rome on his way through to Spain. So he's going from as far east as you can get in the Roman Empire to as far west as you can get in the Roman Empire. His travel plans on his next trip do not include Troas. And these believers who are gathered together in this upper room, they know this is the last time that we will ever get to see the Apostle Paul. Now, if you knew that you had one sole opportunity to pick the Apostle Paul's mind, would you stay up until midnight to talk to him? I would. There's a lot of things I would love to hear Paul teach on. Friends, when I get to heaven, i got a, a list of questions as long as my arm to ask the Apostle Paul. And that's what these believers did. Very conversational, very relaxed, and they are there until midnight. And the service just gets prolonged. I may also suggest to you that these believers had to have been hungry for the Word of God. Probably a hunger in Scripture that you and I simply almost cannot even relate to. Would you invest this much time and attention and discipline and effort into the feeding of your own soul? Would you do that? Would you attend a church service if we started here at 8 o'clock in the night and we got over at 12? Would you attend that? Would you come to church then? Or are you the type of person that says, I'll attend church so long as the message is not too long or too short. The church is not too hot or too cold, too full, too empty, too light, too dark long as there's a drinking fountain within walking distance, a convenient bathroom, a convenient parking a place, a decked out nursery, I'll attend church if all of these things or if they don't interfere with a dozen other things you have planned. Do you have that kind of a hunger for the Word of God? These people did. They worked all day. Then they met on Sunday night and they sat there and they listened to Paul for hours. And he went on and on and on. And they listened with all diligence. They listened. Paul ran into a problem that every teacher or preacher of the Word of God runs into. And there are a lot of teachers here because a lot of you work in Awana. A lot of you teach Sunday school and teach in Awana and do council time. And many of you teach as part of the regular Sunday school ministry, and ministry of our church. So I know that a lot of you are teachers. And listen, for those of you teachers out there, you know that the more intimate you get with divine truth, the more you love divine truth, the more you study it, and the deeper into it you dig, you will always run up against the clock. You always have more to say than you have time to say it. And that is because the more intimate you are with divine truth, the more you have to share and the more you want to share, but you always have to cut things short and cut things out and it's a, it's a horrible dilemma. And that's what the Apostle Paul faced. So much to say and so little time to say it. Now he had opportunity to go on and on and, and so he did. And he went on and on with his message and he just gave to them as long as they were willing to listen. And it was because it went so long that it gave occasion for the miracle. Look at verse 8. We get to see not only the worship service, but also the miracle. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. Now, that's a detail that's kind of put in in passing. It's a significant detail, and we'll come back to it in just a second. But look at verse 9. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep, and fell down from the third floor, and was picked up dead. There was a young man named Eutychus, young man. In verse 12, you notice it says, they took away the boy alive. The word boy there is a word that's used to describe somebody between the ages of seven and fourteen. So he's not a young man in the sense that I'm a young man. He is a a boy in the sense of a preteen or an early teenager. He's between the ages of seven and fourteen, and Eutychus has likely been brought to church by his parents as most 7- to 14-year-old boys are. They're not going to leave him home alone at night on a Sunday night while they go to hear the Apostle Paul. And every uh, hungering parent who hungers for the Word of God wants their child sitting right there listening to the message and soaking it in with them. And so Eutychus has been brought to the church service. And like most 7- to 14-year-old boys, he's listening to the Apostle Paul teach and teach and teach And go on and on and on, and pretty soon he's wondering to himself, Paul, would you bring this thing in and land it at some point? You've got to bring about a conclusion to all of this. And bedtime, by midnight, bedtime has come and gone. And like most 7- to 14-year-old boys, in his day and in his culture, he would have spent the entire day either working as part of the family work that had to be done during the day, or playing real hard. And 7- to 14-year-old boys don't have nearly the staying power, as adults do, to stay awake. And so Eutychus, and by the way, his name means fortunate one or lucky one. We would nickname him Lucky. Do you see the irony in that? Lucky comes to church, Lucky falls asleep, and Lucky falls three stories to his death. They wouldn't call him Lucky after that, but that's what his name means, fortunate one, Eutychus. And he is sitting on the windowsill. Why is he sitting on the windowsill? The room is standing room only. Kids don't sit where the parents should sit. All, all, all of the... Sit. Sorry. Parents don't sit where the... Children don't sit where the parents should sit. So all of the good t- uh, seats in the church were taken by the adults. And there was only one place left for Eutychus to sit, and that is in the windowsill. And so he goes over to the windowsill, which would have been covered by a drape, and he removes the drape and props himself up there. And look at the environment. And this is where verse 8 comes into play. There were many lamps in the room. It's getting late. Bedtime has come. Bedtime has gone. And there are lamps, many of them, in the room which are putting off light. And these lamps as they were burning the oil would be producing these clouds of smoke and all of the exhaust from the lamps would push the oxygen out of the room and it would raise the temperature of the room a few degrees and it would be nice and warm in there. And the flickering of those lamps would create shadows that would sort of dance around the room and have this sort of hypnotizing, mesmerizing effect and you can almost imagine how his eyes would begin to cross and everything would become blurry and his eyes would get heavy as the shadows would dance across the room and Paul kept talking on and on and on and on. And he's tired. You can't blame the boy for falling asleep. You ever fallen asleep in a class? Some of you have fallen asleep in a worship service. I know you have. Did you ever fall asleep in a class? We used to have a 9 o'clock chapel service at college. It was after the first hour class. Classes started at 8. At 9 o'clock, we had chapel that would last 40 minutes. And they would bring in a missionary or a missionary representative, or a teacher would speak during that chapel hour, or sometimes even a student who had to get credit for preaching class. He would preach his message during the chapel hour. And so all of the students would come there at 9 o'clock. Some of them well all of them had been up late at night studying very hard like we did at college up until all hours of the night and they wanted nothing more from 9 to 9:40 to do than to just sleep and some of them did and i was never on the giving end of that i never stood behind the pulpit during chapel and looked out at the audience but i could, all i could you could sit in the back row and look across the crowd toward the stage and you would see a whole bunch of heads bowed down like this with their hands, heads resting on their arms, and their arms resting on their knees. You couldn't hear the snores, but you knew that everybody was trying to catch up on some sleep. I married a student who could tell you all about falling asleep in class. <laughs> and she could sit in the front row, in the front seat, in the center of the classroom, from 8 to 9 o'clock, did no good. She would sleep. And it's not because Paul was boring. Listen, the room was standing room only. People don't sit and listen to a boring preacher for hour after hour after hour after hour. If Paul was boring, somebody would say, Whoa, look at the time. Got to get Eutychus home, put him to bed. It's a busy day tomorrow. It's an early day this morning. We're tired. We got to go and love to catch part two of this, but maybe sometime when you're back in Troas, we'll catch part two. We'll see you later. They didn't do that. It's not because Paul was boring. Everything was working against this young man. His age The environment, everything. And he is tired. And as he sits there and look at a little touch of humorous writing, Luke says, as Paul kept on talking, going on and on and on, Eutychus was sinking into a sleep. He was fighting it off. He didn't want to sleep. Listen, he was sitting in the windowsill, which of all of the places in the room gave him the freshest burst of fresh air. It was by the windowsill. That's where the air was the freshest. But it couldn't keep Eutychus awake you ever had that experience where you're drifting off to sleep and all of a sudden you jerk yourself back away because you feel like you're falling, that sensation of falling? You ever do that? That's what happened to Eutychus. He got that falling sensation. <laughs> and it kind of gives a whole new meaning to the term falling asleep, doesn't it? That's exactly what Eutychus did. He fell asleep. And he fell out of the third-story window sill and he dropped three stories to his death. You think that caused a commotion in the worship service? When somebody dies during your sermon, it has a way of disturbing things. And he would have done that. There would have been a scuffle as he maybe caught himself and woke up at the last minute, maybe a shout or a yell, and then a thud. And somebody would have rushed to the windowsill and they would have seen Eutychus lying down there. And Paul stopped his message, Luke says, and everybody rushed down out onto the street and they took him up dead. Now some people say Eutychus wasn't really dead. Eutychus was just injured. And so when the Apostle Paul rushes out and he picks up the boy and he says his life is still in him, Paul is simply saying, oh, he's still alive, don't worry. No, Dr. Luke, the eyewitness, says they picked him up and he was dead. That's a physician's assessment of the situation. An eyewitness, he said Eutychus was dead. Now, I don't know if he broke his neck, if he just smashed his head, but when everybody went down there, Eutychus was dead. This was going to prove to be a very memorable evening, not only for Paul, but for everybody else in Troas. And in a way that reminds you of Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul fell upon the boy, maybe in grief, maybe in excitement, maybe in anticipation, maybe just because he felt so bad about what had happened, or maybe it was that he was he was doing what Elijah and Elisha did in anticipation of the fact that God would raise this boy back to life. And he fell upon the boy and he picked the boy up in his arms and embraced him and he said, do not be troubled, his life is in him. Now that's not Paul miss. Uh, correcting their misunderstanding of the fact that he's dead. He's not saying, no, he never really died, he's just simply alive. That's the Apostle Paul affirming to them, the boy has been given life again. It's a miracle. Paul picked him up, and he picked him up, and he embraced the boy. And as a result of that, God, through the Apostle Paul, raised Eutychus back to life. Now Luke doesn't say what they did after that. Did they leave him on the street or just bring him inside on the first floor and let him sleep through the rest of the service? But Luke does say, look at verse 10, after Paul went down and fell upon him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with him a while longer until daybreak, and then he left. He just kept on going. (laughs) I mean, after a death and a resurrection, and you go up, you get a little refreshment from the meal, and you're good for you got your second wind. That's what the Apostle Paul did. Now, do you think he had their undivided attention at that point? After all of that anticipation, all of that excitement, all of that activity and that commotion, and rushing downstairs and seeing that happen, and then going back upstairs, they finish their service, which ends up lasting until daybreak. And he has their undivided attention. And after something like that, do you think you'd have a few questions for the Apostle Paul? Yeah, if I ran out of questions in the first half of the service, after seeing something like that, I would have a whole new group of questions to ask the Apostle Paul. And they continue the worship service, it says, until daybreak. These people had to go to work the next morning. And the Apostle Paul had to travel the next morning. In fact, this is something I want you to notice about the Apostle Paul. I want you to notice the man's stamina. He's been traveling, and listen, traveling takes it out of you. Just traveling takes it out of you. He got to try, as He stayed there seven days. And now, in an evening service, probably after working with his own hands all day long, which Paul did to provide for his own needs, after working with his own hands and all of the activity that would have kept him during the day, they have an evening service, and it becomes an all-nighter. They go all night long. And then look at verse seven, uh, verse 11. When he had gone back up and broken bread and eaten, he talked with them until daybreak, and then he left. And they took away the boy alive and were comforted. Verse 13 says that they left immediately that morning to go travel. So Paul has been traveling, he's been active, and then he has a, a service that lasts all the way through until daybreak, and in daybreak they leave. And Luke says that him and his party, Luke and his party, went by sea around the end, and Paul traveled by land. So after teaching all night long, the Apostle Paul leaves for traveling. And he walks to Asos, the city, where he catches the boat that Luke is on. Listen, friends, not only does traveling take it out of you, but teaching takes it out of you. Teaching makes you exhausted. Preaching makes you exhausted. And yet here the Apostle Paul teaches all night long, raises somebody from the dead in the midst of it, all that excitement, and then he leaves and he walks to a sauce and starts traveling again after pulling an all-nighter. Paul's in his 50s by this point, late 50s. You think, wow, he's a man of tremendous physical abilities. What a man of health and stamina. No, listen. We know from his writings he was plagued by physical infirmities. But this just demonstrates to us, it's stuff like this, these little details like this that make us shake our head in amazement at the Apostle Paul. shows us his selflessness. He could have come into Troas in 10:30, 11 o'clock at night, said, "You know, I'm tired. Eutychus is tired. I can tell that Eutychus is trying to drift off to sleep. Maybe we should just stop this whole thing, and I'll write you a letter later on and sort of answer some of your questions." Paul could have done that. I, I got a long itinerary tomorrow. I got a lot of traveling to do. I got to walk, and I, want, I need to be well rested. But listen, as long as these people were willing to listen to the word of God, Paul was there to serve them. That took until midnight. That took until daybreak, and he kept on going, and then he left to go travel. What a selfless individual the Apostle Paul was. I can only conclude that the man had absolutely no regard for his own physical well-being, for his own physical feelings, or for his own emotional state. Absolutely none. But he was there to spend and be spent for believers, and he did. Now you'll notice this morning that our... For the Lord's Supper, we're set up to enjoy communion in the Lord's Supper together today. And I want you to, and we're going to do that here in a few minutes, I want you to sort of observe one last thing about this whole account that's here with the early church and this miracle. How appropriate is it that there should be a resurrection at a communion service? Isn't that appropriate? They were gathered together for what? The breaking of bread. They came together. They were enjoying the Lord's Supper together and teaching and fellowship and everything that was going on there with the Apostle Paul. How appropriate is it that there should be a miracle and that that miracle should be, actually be a resurrection? That is incredibly appropriate. You know why? Because in our communion service, we observe and remember the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the elements that we partake of, the bread and the juice, Remember and look back to his death, but his death means nothing without his resurrection. Without the resurrection, the death of christ is it's just simply a a hapless murder. He's an a victim, an innocent victim of the terrible plans of a bunch of men. It's just an accident. He's a martyr, But with the resurrection, his death takes on new meaning. So the elements speak of the death of Christ, but when we partake, we partake until he comes. That is, He's coming again because He's risen again. And because He is risen, He's coming. And because He is coming, we partake of the elements together, looking back not only at His death, but looking forward to His coming because He is risen. The the whole communion service, the, the whole celebration of the Lord's Supper is an expression of thanks to the risen Lord. And so here they had a a living illustration of the life-giving power of God. Listen, friends, we worship and we celebrate and we adore a God and Savior who gives life to the dead. And John 6 says He will raise all of us up on the last day. We will all be raised and stand together with Him. And we partake of communion in anticipation of that day. Because He is risen, we will rise too. This body that we have right now, that we are in right now, will be put off and we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye and we will put on immortality. We'll go to be with him and with him forever because of his death, because of his resurrection. Now I'd ask you to make certain of two things this morning and the first first one is that you know this Savior whose death we are observing this morning. If you've never repented of your sin and trusted Christ for salvation, then you are outside of Christ and I have some horrible news for you. You will stand before a holy God and you will answer for your misdeeds, your sins, your transgressions, every last one of them. You have no forgiveness. You have no sacrifice. You have no hope to stand before a holy tribunal when all of your sins against heaven will be manifest in plain sight and you will be asked to give an account and then you will suffer the punishment for that. If you want mercy, you must find mercy where God offers mercy, and that's in Christ. If you want grace, you have to find grace where God gives grace, and that's in Christ. If you want forgiveness, you can only have forgiveness if you take forgiveness where it is offered, and that's in Christ. So believe on Him today. Second thing, and this is for those of us who are believers, we need to make sure that we do not partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so we need to make sure that we're not mocking the death of Christ by partaking of the Lord's Supper while there's sin in our hearts and our lives. The body and the blood of Christ that has saved us and secured us and sanctifies us is not only sufficient for all of our salvation, all of our holiness, and securing our eternal destiny forever. It is also sufficient for daily grace and for daily forgiveness. And so we come to the Lord and we prepare our hearts, understanding that what we are partaking of together here is actually that thing that cleanses us from all sin. Sorry, it is a symbol of that thing that cleanses us from all sin, namely His atonement, His death and His burial and His resurrection. So let's pray together quietly for a few minutes and then we will partake of communion together.